Acts 24, 1 through 23, that'll be our text for this morning. Last week we wrapped up chapter 23. We looked at how the zealots and Sanhedrin put together a plot to kill the apostle Paul and how the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias rescued him from their plot by bringing him to Caesarea so that he would be safe and more importantly given an opportunity to testify before Governor Felix. That is where we left off. I'll just abbreviate the introduction. That's what happened last week, and I'll encourage you, if you were not with us, just to go online and to listen to the sermon and uh, to get all of, the, all of the details. That is where we left off. And you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited this morning uh, just to tell you something, that uh, this sermon today will be our 100th sermon in the book of Acts. I'm glad two people appreciate that. I think that, you know, more than anything, it is a testimony to God's goodness to us as a church. Um, It's a rare thing today, and it's not that God isn't good to other churches, but it's a rare thing for anyone these days to spend that much time in any single book, especially the book of Acts, which for the most part is thought of as not a book that's rich with doctrine and these sorts of things. And so I just think it's it's a wonderful testimony to the goodness and faithfulness of our God. And, uh, and I can tell you from personal experience, it's been a transformative study for me. It has helped to, to grow me and to make me more like Christ, which I'm not as much like Christ as I would like at this point, but it, it, has, been a, it has been an amazing journey. Um, this might be, because I've taught through Mark and a few other books, and I spent quite a bit of time in Mark, and I think I probably did about 80 sermons in that, so this is the longest series I've ever ever taught or been involved in. But I'd like just to really quickly just give the Lord a round of applause for his goodness to us because, I mean, he is is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our gratitude and thanks. And when he blesses his children in this way, uh, by giving us the word this way, it's just extraordinary. So I'm, I'm certainly happy with Jesus for doing this and doing this for me and for you. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll begin at 24 verse 1, okay? Lord, I I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to move in power, um, that the Holy Spirit would take the preached word of God and apply it to each of our lives, making us more like Christ. Maybe there'd be someone in here who is not like Christ at all because they have yet to come to know him in a saving way. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in that kind of power saving power, not just sanctifying power, but saving power. We devote and commit this time to you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pick it up in verse 1, 24 verse 1, and I just thought about this when I was sitting back there. Man, we've got like five full chapters left until we're done with this book. I have no clue as to what we're going to do afterwards. So just know that the elders and I are clueless, but we're trusting the Lord that he's going to direct us and please Jesus help us because it's like, (laughs) what do we do? You know, I think just, we'll just close down after Acts. (laughs) That's just it. You know, we're just, that's it. We're done after Acts and and, and we don't want to go any further. It's been great and and we don't want the guy who preaches all the time to, to mess it up any worse. So we'll just stop. But anyways, let's pick it up in verse 1. This is a really interesting text. What we're going to be looking at is Paul's third defense. 
He defended himself several times, the gospel, his ministry, and uh, this is his third defense, and he gives it before Governor Felix. Remember, he's been brought up to Caesarea by Lysias, and so he's there. So let's look at verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case before Paul. Back in 2335, we read that Governor Felix was willing to listen to Paul's case. Remember, Paul had been drugged before the Sanhedrin uh, for preaching the gospel, or really just preaching against the temple and the, the, you know, the Jewish law and these sorts of things. Those were the allegations. He'd been in hot water, and at this point, he'd been brought all the way up to Caesarea to face Felix to give a defense. He's got all of these Jews that are opposed to him and want him killed, and so... Back in 2335, after he was delivered to Felix, Felix was totally willing to listen to Paul's case, but not until his accusers arrived. Makes sense, right? You know, you've got plaintiffs and you've got defendants. You know, our court system is sort of based on, or at least was started off of the idea of the Roman court system, their judicial system. And so you've got, you know, the defendant, if you will, there, and they had to wait for the plaintiffs to come and make their case, or the accusers, if you will. And so they actually arrived five days later. So Paul was sort of in this limbo mode for five days, just waiting for these guys to come so he could argue his case. Now Luke, the author of Acts, identified uh, them for us. He tells us right in that verse uh, who had made this case against Paul and who had traveled that 60 miles to come up there and argue this case uh, before the governor. And the first one we see is the high priest, Ananias. We talked about him several weeks ago. He was literally the highest ranking religious leader in Jerusalem. Religious leader, that is. He was kind of a religious political leader, if you will, but more thought of as a religious leader from the folks in Jerusalem. But on the other side, he was really thought of as a political leader. But he was the highest ranking religious leader in Jerusalem. He literally sat on the throne of the Sanhedrin, that 72-member court, Jewish religious court. He was on the throne of that court. He was the top dog. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, uh, we also learned that he was corrupt, that he was a brutal uh, high priest, that he had suppressed the Samaritans, and uh, he, was just a, he was just a really, really, really bad guy. Uh, I, I read that MacArthur wrote that Ananias was one of the most corrupt high priests in Israel's history, and I thought, okay, that's a pretty bold statement. Was he just, you know, using some hyperbole and shooting off the hip when he made that statement? Or did he actually do some research and then make that statement? And I believe because MacArthur is very thorough in how he deals with the word of God, he probably did some research on it. You think about it. Israel's first high priest was Aaron. Remember the BFF of Moses? Remember Aaron? That was Israel's first high priest. Now you think about going all the way back to Aaron and then going all the way forward to Ananias, that's 1,500 years. How many high priests sat on that throne over Israel for over 1,500 years? I actually tried to count them, and I, it just, I couldn't do it. There was just too many of them. In fact, I couldn't get past the first five books of, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, where it talks about a few different ones. It was just unbelievable. And so this guy, according to MacArthur, was 
one of the absolute worst of all time, this guy that has just traveled to Caesarea, this guy who's bringing this charge against Paul. He was an absolute disaster. Now also keep in mind that Ananias was a Sadducee, which means that he was political. You know, you had two governing groups in the Sanhedrin. You had Sadducees, which were religious but really political guys, and then you had Pharisees who were super religious guys. They weren't really political. And the high priest uh, in Israel was typically, I don't know how far back the states, maybe a couple of hundred years, but typically the high priest, you know, was an aristocracy and was always handed down, you know, and it was always, the high priests were always, for at least two to three hundred years, they were always um, Sadducees or political leaders. Maybe we would say that Ananias was a political leader who was posing as also a religious leader. He wasn't really a religious person, if you will, not in the right sense, but he claimed that and used that as a part of his platform. And so he was a Sadducee. Uh, I like to think of Sadducees as pseudo-religious. They're wannabes, fakers, hypocrites. They're not really about the truth or these sorts of things. They actually rejected 34 of the Old Testament books. They only believed, when it comes to scripture, only the first five, the Pentateuch, were the books that they stuck to and taught and trained and believed. And so they rejected all the rest of the Old Testament. And of course, on the other side, when you swing the pendulum over, you have the Pharisees who actually despised the Sadducees because they affirmed all of the Old Testament scripture and believed all of it. The minor prophets, the major prophets, you know, all of it. Psalms, all of it. And so that's who this guy was. And Ananias ultimately feared Paul. He feared Paul. He feared the way, which is what the church or which was, is what Christianity was called back then. He had a great fear over the church and over men like Paul. A tremendous fear over people like this. He thought that a guy like Paul would try to overturn his office. He felt that somebody like Paul would create dissension amongst people, that it would threaten his rule and reign. And so uh, he, there was a, a lot of self-interest mingled into these accusations. Uh, these guys ultimately... You know, a few guys, or at least one guy before him, Caiaphas, was the one, the other high priest that had Jesus put to death. And I think ultimately the reason why he had Jesus put to death, we had Jesus claimed to be the son of God, which was blasphemy. But I think ultimately the reason why the other high priest had Jesus put to death was because of the threat. He felt that Jesus was a threat to his office and to his way of life and to his power. And so Ananias is following, in a, you know, he's following the rest in a long line of sociopathic, self-centered, uh, you know, completely paranoid, you know, uh, guys, leaders. He's just completely afraid of Paul. And, and ultimately, Paul was no, uh, and no Christian has ever been, at least back in these days, they were never any sort of political threat. The point of Christianity was never to topple governments and to establish some sort of caliphate, if you will. I'll use that phrase from the Middle East right now with ISIS. It was never to overthrow governments. It was never to do any of those things. It was always and has always been to bring the light of God's truth into a dark world. 
and, and for God to call home his people and these sorts of things. And so the gospel, I think the gospel does threaten, though, if you think about it. It doesn't threaten the topple governments and those things, but it threatens who we are in our natural state. I don't think Paul was really the threat. I think at the end of the day, it was the gospel that was the real threat. Uh, The gospel does what? It exposes our corruption. Not just the corrupt things that we do uh, on a day-to-day basis if we engage in corrupt business tactics and these sorts of things, illicit weights and measures as you would read in Proverbs. You know, God forbids that. He wants people to be honest in business. Um, But our own personal sinful corruption, that which is, is within It exposes those things. It exposes our sin. It shines light, right? The light of truth, the light of God upon our iniquities and transgressions. And the fact is, we don't like that. We don't like it. We don't like to have what's buried within us and what bubbles out on occasion. We don't like to have those things exposed. We don't like to have them identified the way that they truly are. And we're constantly justifying and rationalizing our sin and our behavior. And the fact is, is that Ananias just, did he fear his office? Yeah. Did he fear Paul because he thought he was some sort of political opponent? Yeah. But he also hated the gospel because he was a corrupt sinner like us all, maybe worse off because of his office, but he didn't like the fact that what Paul preached exposed his corruption and his sin. That's ultimately what got Jesus killed, I believe. And that's what has Paul in this predicament. Luke also identifies some elders. These were other Sadducees, right? Key leaders of the Sanhedrin. They were Ananias' compadres. Uh, They were also there out of fear. If Paul was some sort of political figure who could topple the Sanhedrin, then they had much at stake too and could lose so much. They also hated the gospel because it exposed them, but they're there because of the same reason that Ananias is there. And then you have the spokesman, Tertullus. Tertullus was probably a Hellenist, which is a Jew who is Grecian, if you will. It's a Jew who is kind of like half Jewish and half Greek. It's a a Jew that has Greek tendencies. Maybe he's a guy who was raised as a Greek and he converted to Judaism or something of that nature, but it's a person who is, their religion is Judaism, but their life is really Greek, if you will. And so he was a Hellenist, more than likely, a Grecian Jew. And he was also an attorney. He was a lawyer. And he was an expert, an expert in Roman law. He knew the Roman judicial system. He knew the Roman law. He knew how it worked. He knew its inner, you know, uh, turnings and the cogs. And he just knew. He knew the lingo. He knew the language. He knew the procedures. He was very, very familiar with Roman law. And an interesting tidbit of truth is that Jews would often hire guys like Tertullus if they had some sort of proceeding or court case 
that was going to be done in a Roman law. See, Jews didn't understand Roman law all that well. So they would hire someone who was like them, who was well studied in that law and in that system of law. And so this guy was hired by the Sanhedrin to go up and represent them and to make their case to bring these accusations on behalf of the Sanhedrin. He's a paid attorney. I had some uh, dealings with attorneys this last week. I got a subpoena right before. Let me tell you, the worst time possible to get a subpoena is five minutes before church begins. Literally, a guy comes up and Bruce brought him right to me. I'm like, Bruce, you should have been me. These guys, you know, a guy comes in with a rifle. He's right up there. Uh, you're supposed to take a bullet, brother. And so this guy comes in and gives me this thing. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know what it was about. I thought, what'd I do? You know? And uh, maybe my past is catching up to me. Who knows, right? There's some stuff I thought I got rid of, you know? Uh, and uh, so I sat in court, you know, I sat down in the hallway, I got a subpoena, I had to go witness for something, and I, I sat there all day on Tuesday, and attorneys are going around, and it's funny, you know, they act all professional when they're in the courtroom, right? When they come out, they're like slapping each other. This guy's against this guy in the court. When they come out, they're like going to get a beer. I mean, they're like in cahoots. But when they're away from the defense or whatever, they're like, I'm your best friend. I'm your guy. You know, and then they get together after hours. It's really weird. So I was watching all this stuff play out. I had a, a deputy DA that I was dealing with, and it was just weird. And so I don't know about you guys, but I just get kind of awkward in courtrooms. I don't like courtrooms, and I don't like that whole scene. I don't like hospitals either. But it was just a, it was a weird thing. So I was like, hey, I'm going to be studying something like this this week. Maybe there's a parallel. And there really isn't. But Tertullus was a lawyer, okay? Now let's begin to analyze their case. Let's take a look at their case, all right? Look at verses 2 through 9. It says, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. <laughs> right? But to, to detain you no further, I beg you and your kindness to hear us briefly. Like, I don't want to waste your time. I'm going to get right to the point. For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague. A plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried, how dare he, he even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And then it says in verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. All right. Tertullus began by buttering up Felix. Boy, he slapped that butter on him pretty good, didn't he? He did. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace. Yeah, right. Come on. Since through you we enjoy much peace. Tell that to the people of Caesarea. 
Tell that to the people of, of, of Governor Felix's own community. Oh, when they protested his government and the corruption, he responded with barbarism. Felix was a corrupt and violent, violent dictator. He was. Since through you we enjoy much peace. You know, it's, it's, it's an oxymoron. You know, Roman and peace are not synonymous. They don't go together, man. You know, you don't think of, well, I think, you know, when I, when I want to have a peaceful evening, I think of the Roman Crusades. What? I mean, they conquered the whole region. They were barbarians. Well, they weren't barbarians in the typical sense. They were very, very technologically advanced in their warfare. Barbarians ran around like Conan in those cheesy 80 movies. I tell you. You know? These guys had siege works. I mean, these guys were very, this was the most advanced empire in the world at the time and had been for, I'd say, up into the Renaissance. These guys were no joke, but they were, they were very, very, very brutal. They were not about peace. And so this is insane that a Hellenistic Jew would say, since through you, we enjoy much peace. It's not what's really cranking around in his mind. And he says, by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. <laughs> this is laughable. History records no reforms made by Felix. I looked into it. You can't find anything from Josephus or Suetonius or any of the early historians that actually shows that Felix put forth reforms that benefited anything. Where's this guy coming up with this stuff? See, this is why you don't trust lawyers. They just come up with whatever they want. By your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. This is laughable. There's nothing out there. The truth is, two years later, Emperor Nero removed and replaced Felix because of incompetence. Just two years after this hearing right here, after this court. Two years later, he was pulled from his job because he really stunk at it. Excellence and Felix do not belong in the same sentence because there was nothing excellent about him. And I don't mean to sound like, gosh, you're so mean. You're so harsh, Phil. This is the truth. This guy was a baboon. And it says, in every way and Everywhere we, he's speaking of the Jews, accept this with all gratitude. <laughs> Tertullus asserts that Jews everywhere were thankful to Felix. We are so thankful for you that you are our overseer. What a crock! Right? There was nothing to be thankful for because nothing had been done. The Jews hated Rome, especially its leaders. The Romans were occupiers. They suppressed the Jews in every way. They taxed the Jews in every way, and the Jews really hated that. They exploited the Jews in every way conceivable. There was no gratitude from the Jews towards Felix or towards Romans, period. That's the truth. And Felix was not an idiot. He knows who he is, and he knows what he's about, and he knows what he represents. 
and how offensive it can be at times when people try to butter us up and they think that they know things about us, but they really don't. Kind of reminds me of my, my own dad. He doesn't try to butter me up. I rarely talk to the man. He's kind of got his own thing going. I got my thing going and, you know, and I haven't had a whole lot to do with him since junior high. And once in a while, and we hardly ever talk, and once in a while, he will contact me and say, I love you. Huh? You love me? That's how you love? Every 10 years you call and say you love me? That's a weird love. Do you dislike it when people do that to you, when they say, oh, but you, and they really don't know you, and you're going, dude, shut up. Seriously? You don't know me. I think Felix had a little bit of that going on here. After buttering him up, he began to present his case, right? He brought three charges against Paul, sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Right before making the charges, Tertullus called called Paul something which shows how he and the rest of the members that are with him and the whole Sanhedrin and pretty much the Jewish nation felt about him. He called him a what? A plague. Now, I've been called a lot of things. Moron, idiot, other words that I can't say, they're expletive. But to call someone a plague, that's a new one. I'm going to actually maybe use that in the future, right? You're a plague, right? What do you mean? People don't even know what a plague is today, for crying out loud, right? Las plagas, right? They don't know what a plague is. He called them a plague. Plague is loimos in Greek, and it means pest. Have you ever called someone a pest? If you have small children, yes, you have. (laughs) Pestering me. Come on. Oh, look at Aaron. He never does that. (laughs) I can say that I've thought of him as a pest in the elders meeting. So, (laughs) Pestering me with that. Are you kidding me? And then he gets his way. It just means pest, probably in Paul's NASB, because he refuses to use the ESV. It probably says pest, right? See? More accurate translation right there. Today only. Get yours today only, $29.95. Yeah, it means pest. To them, Paul was like a fly that keeps landing on your face. Or a mosquito that keeps buzzing your ear in the middle of the night. Is that the most annoying thing? You're laying there and... Oh, Jesus, this is the best. And you're like, right? And you don't get him. And then you turn the light on and you're looking at the ceiling. Where is he? And you can't find him. And then you turn the light back out and you get in bed and everything's cool again. And you ever do that? I hate that. I hate that. Why did Noah have to take those stupid mosquitoes on the ark? That's what Paul was to them. Maybe like ants that keep bubbling up out of the ground, although you keep spraying them. You know, a pest is one who just doesn't go away and keeps doing the same things over and over, and they're a nuisance, right? And so that's what plague means. This guy's a nuisance. He's a pest. Now look at the charges, sedition. Sedition is the crime of saying, writing, or doing something that encourages people to disobey their government. We see this in the first half of verse 5. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. 
In this particular court, this was the most serious charge because the Romans had a zero tolerance policy in place towards those or against those who stirred up revolts and riots in their provinces. Seditionists, or we would also refer to them as insurrectionists, were put to death. Anyone who spoke outwardly and openly against the Roman government and led others to do the same thing, kind of like Christians are doing today against the Obama administration on Facebook endlessly. It's like, we all know. Please stop your posts. We get it. We know he's corrupt. I don't need to hear about this new scandal he was caught in. Nothing's going to be done about it. Please. These posts are a nuisance. They're pests. They're plagues. And I have to admit, I've spent a good deal of time posting them, and I just don't do it anymore. And that's what it is. Sedition is just to speak against your government and to lead others to do the same thing, and maybe it'll culminate in some sort of outward response against the government. And the Romans absolutely dealt with that situation with sedition very quickly. Oh, he's saying stuff and causing others to do things. We'll deal with him. Before being traded for Jesus, Barabbas was scheduled for crucifixion for committing the crime of sedition. He was a seditionist. He created or led an uprising against the Roman government with the zealots. And he was supposed to be killed. And that's what they were saying about Paul. He's a seditionist. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the whole world. Well, how does that... He's not, we're talking about the Jews here. Yeah, but we're talking about in Roman provinces. Well, wherever the Jews were was a Roman province. It didn't matter if it was on the other side of the Mediterranean. Wherever there were Jews, if there were revolts and riots, that was in a Roman province where the Romans were responsible to keep the peace. And so if you had issues with the Jews in a Roman province, you were considered a seditionist against Rome. You were creating havoc and problems in a Roman province. The fact of the matter is Paul never stirred up any riots. Paul didn't go around as a seditionist trying to, you know, overthrow or topple governments. He was actually a victim of riots. He went somewhere and everyone exploded and started a riot. And he'd be like, what happened? Right? Sectarianism. Sectarianism means to have excessive devotion to a particular sect, especially in religion. It's a little broader than that, but that's, it's a little tough to figure out too. Now we see this in the second half of verse 5, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This charge carried less weight because Romans were disinterested in foreign religion, especially the religions of the Jews and Christians. And Tertullus hoped that Felix would side with the Jews and began to defend them against Paul, the awful Nazarene who was trying to destroy Judaism, who was involved in this sect of, he was a sectarian because he was involved in this sect of the Nazarenes and he was trying to undermine and attack our sect, which is Judaism. And so he figured, well, paint him as a sectarian and that way Rome will defend our side, Felix will. Sacrilege. Sacrilege is the violation or injurious treatment of a sacred object or person. We see this in verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Remember, the Jews from Ephesus made up the story that Paul had brought Trophimus, Trophimus the Gentile, into the inner court of the temple, thus defiling it, but it never happened. Paul did not bring his Gentile friend into that quadrant, into that 
place. But that's the idea here. He tried to defile the temple, which is a sacrilege. Those are the three charges they made against him. When you boil it down, Tertullus tried to present Paul as the ultimate lawbreaker. This guy has broken laws all the way across the spectrum, right? The pest, the plague broke Roman law, sedition. He broke Jewish law, sectarianism. And he broke God's law, sacrilege. That's the claim here. He's a lawbreaker. And how do Romans deal with lawbreakers? They imprison them or crucify them. That's the angle. Bursting with confidence and certainty, Tertullus said to Felix, examine him yourself and you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Oh, wow, how he presumed upon Felix here. I think Tertullus might have been fresh out of law school, right? Because he seriously underestimated Paul's ability to defend himself in a court setting. Paul had far more experience in a court setting than this clown. He was pretty good at this. More importantly, Tertullus severely underestimated the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. Because it is the Holy Spirit that is giving Paul the words and the defense in this setting and in every other setting. And he underestimated all of this. Notice what happened in verse 9. Tertullus was pretty good at presenting a case. It was pretty stirring. Verse 9 says, The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Who were these guys? Who were the Jews? Where did they come from? Were they from Caesarea? I don't think so. Maybe they just had Friday off and they decided all to go down to the courtroom and see what was going on. That doesn't make sense. That's not logical. I think they were likely Jews who came down from Jerusalem with Ananias, the elders, and Tertullus. They may have been the 40-person zealot team that was trying to kill Paul in hopes that they might get an opportunity to kill Paul. I think that's who it was, the Jews. That's how they're referred to back in 23. We don't know. In any case, they began to affirm the charges Tertullus made. More witnesses, the better, right? Look at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So it was Paul's turn to speak, right? He was, it was time for the defense to present their case. And we have to look at it there and it's kind of, Interesting that the governor gave Paul the it's your time to speak nod, right? Like, okay, yeah, you're up. He gives him the nod. And Paul began with a little buttering of his own, if you will, just a little bit. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, Paul's salutation his introduction, if you will, was far less sappy and pretentious than that of Tertullus. Tertullus sought to flatter Felix. Paul sought to acknowledge Felix's experience and affirm his understanding of the land. 
Felix had served in Palestine for five years to this point, which meant that he had an astute knowledge of Jewish life, law, and culture. Because of this, Paul felt that he could receive a fair trial. He thought, okay, this guy has some experience. He knows how these things work in our culture. He has some knowledge. He knows what's going on to a degree. So Paul felt like, okay, maybe I can get a fair trial here because this guy is a little rather astute in these things. He knows what's going on. And that's why he said, because of this, because you have been over our land or whatever, you are the leader, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul felt like this guy was somewhat competent. So it's a little less buttering and a more truthful statement, really. I can make my case before you because you seem to know what's going on. That's what Paul said. Now let's look at how Paul responded to each of the charges against him because this text is broken down that way. It's really phenomenal. He literally responded to sedition and and to sectarianism and to sacrilege he did he addressed those are the charges made against him and those that's the defense he made he spoke to each of those things which i think is amazing and it's the way that you would do this number one paul's response to the charge of sedition verses 11 through 13 again creating riots, stirring up trouble against the Roman Empire, right? Paul says this in verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Paul begins by saying, I didn't even have time to start a riot. (laughs) We're talking 12 days from the moment that I arrived in Jerusalem to now. Less than two weeks. I'm a riot starter. I just got there. That's what he says. And he says in 12, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. When these guys came upon me, I was standing there doing nothing. I was barely in town. I just got there. I was hanging out, worshiping God. Nobody with me, nobody around me. And these guys were trying to say I did all this stuff. He says, neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Paul is being honest. How could Paul be guilty of sedition when he'd only been in town for 12 days, or 11 days actually, maybe 10 days if you think about it, because he had to travel to Caesarea. And then when he was found by these accusers, he was minding his own business. That's the truth. That's what we read in the text. How could I be guilty of sedition when that's actually what I I wasn't doing any seditious act? That's what Paul says. So he responded to the claim of sedition easily. Number two, Paul's response to the charge of sectarianism, verses 14 through 17. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You know what he just said here? He said, they say that I'm a part of a sect, but I believe exactly what they believe. How can I be a part of some illicit, crazy, weirdo sect? How can I be a sectarian when I actually believe in the same doctrines that they believe in. That's what he's saying. And if you think about it, it's okay to say this. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism, of the law, if you will. And so believing in Jesus, there is a close alignment between us as Christians and Jewish people. We're part of the same group in a way 
There is a little bit of a dividing line. I'd say a big dividing line. Paul would say a huge dividing line, and that's Jesus. They do not accept Jesus as their Messiah. We do. He's their Messiah, and he's the Messiah to all Gentiles, people. And so Paul is saying, you're calling me a sectarian, but we have the same doctrine. We're part of the same religion, if you will, in a way. Having a hope in God, which these men accept, the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What he's saying here is that, again, he said this back in the last chapter, my conscience is clear before God. Being a Nazarene has not put me in some sort of a guilt mode. I'm following Jesus and I don't have guilt because Jesus is the Messiah. And, it, and then he says, now after several, several years, okay, he was out doing his mission, his third mission trip, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Remember why he came to Jerusalem? Part of the reason was to deliver the offering that he had collected at all of the Gentile churches that he had planted. This offering was for the benefit of the church in Jerusalem, but also for the benefit of the nation of Israel. Because the church is to benefit its surrounding people and its nation and countries and places. The church brings the truth and, and brings um, compassion and love and provision in these things to a broken, shattered world. When Paul brought that offering to the church at Jerusalem, he was also bringing it for his own people, those who had yet to come to know Jesus or who would never know Jesus. And he says, how can I be guilty of sectarianism when we believe some of the same doctrines and I actually came to try to be a blessing to my own people, to these guys who were making this case? That's what he says. Therefore, the charge of sectarianism doesn't stand. And then third, Paul's response to the charge of sacrilege, verses 18 to 20. While I was doing this, right, bringing the offering and these sorts of things, they found me purified in the temple. Okay, how can one commit an act of sacrilege when they are purified in the temple? Coming into the temple being unclean and not being ceremonially cleansed and purified would be an act of sacrilege. And, and the other believers, James and the others, felt that Paul, felt that the other people in the community would claim a sacrilege against Paul if he didn't become clean because he had spent all this time with Gentiles. And if you know the law, it wasn't right. Well, it wasn't really the law. It was their tradition, but you couldn't spend time around Gentiles. You would be made unclean if you were a Jew. Paul traveled through all these Gentile regions. He came back and they suggested, well, you know, so that you don't have trouble, maybe you should go be ceremonially cleansed. And so Paul did that. He went through the process. He paid for those Nazarites to do it too. And he came into the temple cleansed. How was he committing a sacrilege here? And then he also touches again on this idea of riot, sedition, without any crowd or tumult. Okay? I came into the temple I was ceremonially cleansed. I followed the ceremonial laws. I followed the process. I did exactly what their tradition requires of me is what he's saying. How could I be guilty of this? And he says, and there was no riot. There was no tumult. There was none of that. I was by myself. I was doing my thing. And then he points to the actual original accusers who are not in the courtroom. Isn't that convenient? The guys who originally started all this trouble were not there. How on earth can this thing go down right if the original people that started all this trouble were not there? 
He says, but some Jews from Asia, remember these were the Ephesian Jews who came to the temple and originally started the trouble with Paul. He says, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. What he's saying is they're not here, so obviously they don't have an accusation. They're the ones that started this mess. And he says, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Now keep in mind that none of these guys were in the temple courts when this stuff went down. It was the Jews from Asia. These guys were fighting the battle in this courtroom for the Jews from Asia. The original guys, the antagonists, the original ones were not there. These guys took up that cause and were fighting it, but none of them were there. None of them were real witnesses. This is a total farce. Paul knows it. He says, they ought to be here, and if you can find something amongst these guys, any wrongdoing, then okay. And he says, however, in verse 21, there was one thing that did happen in the hall of hewn stone before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, this created a little bit of trouble, remember, just a couple of sermons ago. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. That's interesting. Paul did realize the Sanhedrin was incompetent and that he couldn't get a fair trial in there and he dropped this theological bomb between the Sadducees and Pharisees who disagreed on resurrection. He did do that and that did stir up some trouble. Paul actually admitted to something here but it had nothing to do with these actual charges that took place in the temple. We can see that he very easily defended himself, made a defense because it's not difficult or hard for innocent people to do that. (laughs) <laughs> they don't have anything to hide. He had nothing to hide. Look at our last pair of verses, 22 and 23. And this is interesting. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying... When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix was familiar with the Christian faith. He was familiar. He had a fairly accurate knowledge of the way. And what's intended here is that Luke wants us to know that he understood that Christians were peaceful people, okay? Luke wants us to know that Felix was aware of the hyperbole and flat-out lies of Tertullus. He, Felix, because he understood the way to a degree, he also understood that Tertullus's description of Paul did not fit Something's wrong here because I I have enough experience with the Christian church to know that they don't go around and create riots and cause these problems. They pretty much keep to themselves. Felix knew this. That's what's intended there in that verse. And so he must have been thinking, well, Tertullus is, wow. And so he put them off. He began to put them off. He knew that The way was not comprised of political revolutionaries or seditionists. His hypothesis, as I said, was that believers like Paul were not a threat to the Roman Empire. That's how he boiled it down. 
After Paul argued his case, he began, or he became more convinced of this. He now knew that he had to render his verdict in favor of Paul and then what? Set him free. But he also knew that if he did that, the Jews would cause him great, great trouble. So Felix was in a bit of a conundrum. And he, in typical fashion, did what many politicians do in a situation like this. They do what? They stall. They stall. He said, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He put it off. Now the question is, how was Lysias going to help Felix figure out what to do? Lysias couldn't figure out how to judge between Paul and the Jews in the first place, and that's why they were in Caesarea. When Lysias comes down, I'll try. I'll, I'll, I'll come up with a verdict. He'll help me. <coughs> Lysias walked into the courtroom going, bleep, 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 you know, he didn't know what to do. I brought him to you. What do you mean you're coming back to me? Now, this is fascinating. How was he going to help him come up with a verdict? Now, it also appears that Felix was trying to do something else that politicians do, and that's called pass the buck, right? Well, I'm in a bit of a situation here. If I rule in favor of Paul, then the Jews will hate me, and I'll lose their favor. If I rule against Paul, then I'm keeping an innocent Roman citizen in jail. That will go awry. That's bad. And so... Come on down, Lysias. You're the next contestant on the blame is right. He just kind of passes it over to Lysias. He kicks the case back to Lysias is what he's trying to do here. Well, I don't want to make a decision because that'll be bad for me. I'll let him do it. <laughs> Lysias can fall on the sword. It's his problem to begin with. That's what he was trying to do here. And it's pretty pathetic I think it's coward, cowardly. He, as a religious, or not religious, but political official, should always err. I don't care who he is or what government he belongs to. He should err on the side of truth and do what's just and right. And the Romans were, to a degree, about justice, at least within their own ranks, and doing what's right. And so this guy was obligated to do the right thing, but he was a pure, selfish, self-serving coward. And I suppose we shouldn't be too hard on Felix because he did try to accommodate Paul and make him comfortable during his stint at the praetorium. It says, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. This was really nice, right? What a nice thing for Felix to do for Paul. Hey, your homies can come hang out with you. They can bring you some new music and chill. It's cool. Bring you some good food. I know the Roman cuisine in the jail isn't all that great. They can tend to your needs. This seems like a really kind gesture. But don't get excited. Paul should not have been in jail, period. He was an innocent Roman citizen. He had no business being in jail. And Felix knew it. And that's why he tried to make it a little easier for him. Maybe if I allow Paul some liberty, he won't squawk about his wrongful jail time. That's what he's thinking. I'll let his friends come and go. Putting Paul back in jail was actually done to placate the Jewish authorities and to preserve his standing with them. 
putting Paul back in jail was a self-serving, self-preserving move, period. He didn't give Paul these benefits. He put Paul in jail to get the Jews off his back, but he didn't give him these benefits either because he cared about Paul. He did it because if he made Paul somewhat comfortable, Paul might cause him less trouble. But the interesting thing is, is the greater threat to Felix here was the Jewish authorities because they could return to Jerusalem and start another riot, more trouble. And I think Felix knew who was actually behind the tumult. He knew how um, volatile, zealous Orthodox Jews could be and become. They could create instant trouble. And so he erred on the side of locking Paul away and giving him a few bennies was still self-serving. Eh, I'll close it up. Pretty simple narrative. Not a whole lot of doctrine or anything here. Kind of like last week. I'd like to look again at what Paul did in verses 14 to 15. And I, I really hope that this part of this message is the part that really encourages you and builds you up and prepares you and equips you for the ministry of the gospel. Look back at what he did in verses 14 to 15. We had already saw how he experienced accusations and mistreatment, injustice, these sorts of things. The Jews tried to assassinate his character. (laughs) They tried to assassinate him prior to that, but then they tried to assassinate his character. They ridiculed his religion. They slandered his piety, right? They did these things in the courtroom. That's what Tertullus did on behalf of the Jewish elite. They did these things, this stuff, tried to assassinate his character and these sorts of things, attacked his religion, what have you. They did all of this in front of the highest political official in the land, Governor Felix. (laughs) This was a diabolical attempt to permanently damage Paul. It's terrible. The things that they've said they were hoping would get him the death penalty. Keep that in mind. And yet, and yet, and yet, Paul responded in a way that God would want us to respond during difficult situations. He responded the way that God would want all of us to respond in the midst of a situation like this or some other scenario that's difficult or trying or hard. And I think that's what's so fascinating about Paul all the time we see this. Look at it again with me, verses 14 to 15. But I confess, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, the way of Jesus, right? The gospel, the church, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Okay, we know that Paul defended himself here against the idea of him being a sectarian. But he did something so much greater than that right there in those verses. What did he do? He preached the truth. That's what he did. He preached the truth. 
This is something that Paul did over and over and over in the midst of these terrible situations. I don't think that Paul looked at his situations the way we do. And I know for a fact he didn't respond to them the way we do either. When persecution, injustice, and suffering, whatever type, come our way, we usually see persecution, injustice, and suffering. And then we cry out against those things, don't we? We rail against them. We say, God, take them away. Look at how they're treating me. Look at this illness that I have. Look at what's going on in my life. It's too much. I can't handle it. Please take these things away. That's what we do, right? And you can tell when these things come upon me, I get pretty emphatic. I get pretty excited. Like, Lord, really take these things away. Seriously? That's what we do, typically. But when persecution and justice and suffering or whatever it was, when those things came Paul's way, he saw something else. He saw something greater. He saw something beyond. He saw opportunities. Opportunities for what? For ministry. What a concept. He just didn't look at things and respond to them the way we typically do. Persecution wasn't merely persecution to Paul. It was an opportunity to preach the God-glorifying, life-saving truth. In fact, it was preaching the truth that got him into the mix to begin with. And in a rather fascinating and extraordinary way, he just stuck to the truth. He didn't capitulate. The things that he experienced that came his way, the thorn in the flesh, a personal struggle, the external elements that came against him, all the forces of hell, opportunities for ministry. It's extraordinary. (sighs) This is what he did in Felix's courtroom, isn't it? And this is what he did at the Hall of Hewn Stone and at the synagogues and at the Areopagus and everywhere else he went. That is what is characteristic of Paul. Trouble came, ministry opportunity. People hate me, ministry opportunity. People revile me, ministry opportunity. Struggle in the flesh, ministry opportunity. What would happen if we began to respond to our situations the way Paul responded to his? What kind of impact would it have on our community? I'll tell you what kind of impact it would have. The same kind of impact Paul had on the communities he visited. That's the kind of impact it would have if we began to respond to every situation with ministry. It's silly. We sit here week after week and we marvel at Paul. We marvel at his ministry and we say to ourselves, I could never be like him. I'm not even supposed to be like him. I can never do what he did. We give up before the sermon is over, don't we? How can I do this? I could never argue for the sake of the truth before a governor. I could never do what Paul does. I can't, I, when I'm fighting with my spouse, I can't think ministry. I just think about killing him. Or her. 
I just, I, I can't do it, Pastor Phil, so quit telling me. But if we are in Christ, we have the same power and Holy Spirit that Paul had, which means that we can do what he did. I, did, I got one amen out of that. We can do as Paul did. Now, I'm probably the worst culprit here. I've said over and over as I study the, the scripture, I just, oh my gosh, this guy's insane. Who could ever do this? And I wonder if I've been offending God. And if that's just a lazy way to get out of actually living as a Christian. We can begin to respond to situations the way Paul did with ministry. Examples. We can begin to respond to our difficult marital situations with ministry. Marriage is tough. It's a forge. It's a fire. It is a place where God sanctifies us, shapes us, strips us of stupid stuff. Then we take the stupid stuff back on and he strips it again. We can begin to respond to those difficult marital situations, those circumstances or whatever those things are that are playing out, those challenges, those hardships, those marital things with ministry. And what would that look like? It would look like preaching the gospel to yourself and to your spouse. It would look like stop arguing. It would look like forgive one another. It would look like make sacrifices. It would look like husbands lay down your lives for your wives and wives submit to your husbands. Make ministry together, not war. That's what it would look like. Instead of this, make ministry. Preach the gospel to each other. Love each other. Forgive each other. That's Christian ministry. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation, it says in Scripture. But you've, you've got to be quick. You've got to realize, oh, we're going down a bad path here. It's time to do ministry. Gospel-saturated, soaked ministry. It's not time to act like the world. I just did that for an hour. It's time to shed that, get rid of that, and it's time for ministry. My wife needs ministry. My children need ministry. I need ministry, right? Amen. We can begin to respond to our difficult relational situations with ministry, our friends, our loved ones. Preach the gospel to yourself again. Preach the gospel to your relatives. Preach the gospel to your friends. Apologize to them. Forgive them. Exhort and admonish them. Rebuke them if that's what they need. Humbly serve them. Ministry, 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 ministry. Relationships don't have to be toxic. They are toxic typically at times, but we don't have to allow them to remain toxic. Ministry gets rid of the toxins. The gospel kills the toxins. It purifies. We can begin to respond to our difficult work situations with ministry. Instead of fighting fire with fire or getting discouraged because it's a tough job or it's a hard job or whatever, we can actually do ministry. How? Love the people we work with and serve or sell to, whatever it is that you do. 
Share the gospel with them. Humble yourself and consider them better than you. Serve them for Jesus. Ministry, right? We go to our jobs. It's a nightmare. I hate it. I can't stand it. Ministry is the last thing on our mind. If Paul was in your shoes, ministry would be the first thing on his mind. He's not going. Paul didn't go to a job for the sake of just earning a buck. He went because he went as a representative and ambassador of Christ. John Calvin talked about this. Work is sacred. Work isn't just work. Work is a ministry field. And I know it's hard because I work in a very difficult one and it's tough to make ministry there and to think ministry. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to to recalibrate, to reframe the way that you think about life and living and work and relationships and marriage. Ministry, ministry, ministry. It should all be ministry for the glory of Christ. I'll end with 1 Corinthians 11.1. It proves that we can be like Paul. It proves that we can do as he did. He actually wrote this. It says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Why would Paul write that if there was no, we had no ability or way to imitate him? Why would he say imitate me? But guess what? It's impossible. That's not what the text says. The text says imitate me as I imitate Christ. He would have never wrote imitate me if it were impossible. We can do it. The question is, will we do it? Will we actually take what we study every week and what we read during the week and what we meditate on here and there, will we actually take this and begin to do it? I'm challenging myself right now. When, Phil, will you begin to do it? You know it, you study it, you believe it, but do you do it? Yes and no. I hope that my wife and I get in a little kiss because I'm going to slap ministry all over her <laughs> God give me opportunities for ministry give me difficult situations challenging situations bring it I'll give you some ministry I'll wash your feet <laughs> I'll do it and she'll be like stop The question is, will we imitate Paul this week? More importantly, will we imitate Christ this week? Paul was following his example. Jesus is the one we follow. He's the one we imitate. Church, let's follow the examples of Paul and Jesus and do ministry this week. Take the gospel and go. Be ready to respond to every situation with ministry and prepare to see the hand and work of God like never before. If we really thought this way, captured our thoughts and recalibrated ourselves and began to focus on ministry in these situations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I can't even imagine the kind of work that the Lord would do in this community. We would see similar things that we see playing out in the cities that Paul went to because of his ministry focus. God help us to do it. Father, thank you for this time of study and reflection. 
God, I pray that you would help us to be ministers. Anyone who is in Christ is a minister. They are to minister the gospel everywhere they go. God, help us to recognize that situations, all situations have been ordained for a specific purpose for the church, and that is ministry. That we would minister in the midst of every situation, the tough, the good, the bad, the ugly. Help us to be like Christ, who did that perfectly, who modeled that for us, whom Paul was simply following after. Lord, maybe you need to send us some difficulty and challenge that we can practice these things. That your will make it so. Help us to know, Lord, that it's because of Christ that we can do anything. It's because of the Holy Spirit that we have the ability to live out the Scripture, to to read the Scripture, understand the Scripture, to apply the Scripture, to live out the Scripture. May we celebrate this time, Lord, helping us to understand what we're called to do. May we celebrate communion, reflecting on the finished work of Jesus, his broken body and spilled blood for us. Not only has he saved those who believe in him, but he has equipped us for ministry. May we make the most of every situation for the days are evil. May we celebrate during this time May we be refreshed and nourished by the elements that represent the broken body and spilt blood of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.